Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Squarespace. A dream is just a great idea that does not have a website yet. Make it a reality with Squarespace. They make it easy to turn your idea into a unique website, showcase your work blog, or publish content, even sell products in just a few clicks. Go to squarespace.com slash CanadaLand for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code CanadaLand. You'll save 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain. This episode is also brought to you by Lyft. The fastest growing rideshare company in the U.S. is now here, well, here in the GTA. Listeners from Hamilton to Oshawa, from Harborfront to Richmond Hill can now download Lyft and get a ride in just a few minutes. This is preferred by drivers and passengers because it is the safe and friendly rideshare experience, and they have a commitment to affecting positive change for the future of our cities. You'll get 15 bucks off of your first ride when you use the offer code CanadaLand in Lyft. Go to lyft.com slash invite slash CanadaLand to get that. Terms and conditions apply. Danielle Paradis, journalist, joining us from Edmonton. Hi, Jesse. How you doing? Great, thanks. Danny, today we are going to talk about the grope heard around the world, except for in Canada. We are going to talk about the Globe and Mail. They just won the Missioner Award for reporting on how authorities ignore the victims of sexual assault while using their authority to ignore the victim of an alleged sexual assault. And finally, we will talk about Vice's hipster Ponzi scheme exposed with some fallout here in Canada. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Charlotte Neville, Kathleen McDonald, Nancy Kenny, Sophia Park, Alexandra Begin, Deanne Fountaine, Dan McClintock, and Chris Green. I'm Chris, 
and I'm one of those old guys you're always grousing about. But I listen to Canada Land anyway, because you're smart, you're snarky, and not infrequently, you're even correct. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks. Danielle, you're a freelance journalist. That's right. Do you have a solution for your invoicing needs? No, I have an Excel spreadsheet and I'm mostly out of date on my invoicing. Well, this is a fortunate, a fortunate coincidence for you. I don't know if you know this, but there is a wonderful solution to your problem. It's called FreshBooks. It is the way that freelance journalists and also small businesses can not only send invoices, but send estimates and sneakily know when your invoice has been opened by the other party. It allows you to be paid directly through that invoice. It gets you paid quicker. It saves you time. It's quite a bit more than that. It is the number one cloud accounting software in the world. Millions of people around the world use this Canadian-made tool to run their freelance enterprise or small businesses as more and more of us run those sorts of businesses. FreshBooks is there to give us an accounting department, those of us who can't afford an accounting department. If you are listening to this and not using FreshBooks yet, now is the time to try it. You can try it for free, 30 days, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand and listeners of this podcast can check it out for free and just tell them that we sent you in the how did you hear about us section. Danielle, what did you make, speaking in general terms, of the media coverage of this unprecedented trade war G7 clusterfuck? The media coverage has been, for me, mostly reasonable from the Canadian side, although they are focusing a lot on the conservative politicians and their responses. But I think we are seeing a, a lot of amped up rhetoric for what was mostly a pretty benign press conference. It's nothing that Trudeau hasn't said before. So I was a little shocked both at the response of President Trump and, of course, the ongoing media coverage of something that in most cases might be a non-story. Yeah. I mean, much is built on nothing these days. I mean, the fact that the president of the United States has made more aggressive statements towards Canada than I think any American president maybe has ever made publicly. I know that Nixon called uh, Trudeau an asshole and LBJ said some stuff to Pearson, but not on Twitter, you know, or, yeah. or publicly. So though it's built on nothing, it's something and uh, it's going to get covered. I guess I don't have that much criticism of the Canadian coverage. I, I kind of agree with you. And, you know, there's a lot of editorializing in the wake of this about us sort of like in our cute Canadian way, getting like, well, we're not going to be pushed around. And it's, it's been a boon to Trudeau's popularity domestically, I think. My attention was piqued a bit more by the American and foreign coverage of Canada it's part of this growing trend is, A, we're not covering ourselves as well as we used to, and B, we seem to be in the news, in the global news more than ever. The lack of knowledge about Canada is a bit alarming. I don't know if you saw on CNN the interview with Kevin O'Leary, the former candidate for prime minister of Canada. Do you happen to catch that? No, I didn't. He, well, he was announced as the uh, former candidate for prime minister of Canada. <laughs> so having Kevin O'Leary speak for Canada isn't alarming enough on its own. They just get stuff wrong. Right. And, you know, they're not trying to. I think it's like a mad scramble to find Canadians to write about this stuff. Danny, do you know how I know that American media does not know how to properly cover Canada and how to properly cover Canadian trade dynamics? They don't use the U in color. That would be one telltale. <laughs> yeah. That would be one. Uh, the other would be, I know this firsthand because they've asked me to write about it. I've received a, a couple of requests from 
like not insignificant and not unserious American publications. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to embarrass them for offering me work. I may, in fact, one day take them up if they ask me to write about something I actually know about. Mm -hmm. But some of these are like not like retail fun airport reads. They're like serious policy publications that are like scrambling to get the Canadian perspective on supply chain management. And they're coming to me because I'm a Canadian who's known to some Americans in the media. Uh, Can you write about this? And I'm like, If I'm your guy, uh, you know, I shudder to think that this is how things are getting represented. Yeah, it's kind of odd that they can't find a think tank or browse through the Globe and Mail for some other names. No offense, of course. (laughs) None taken. I started it. The other thing that somehow got threaded into this narrative of the G7 and this looming trade war. Well, it's not looming anymore, I guess. I guess we're in a trade war. The other thing that got threaded into this is this... Justin Trudeau groping incident reported. I don't even know. Do we have a hashtag or a gate for this yet? Not yet, no. You know about this? Yes. So there was a piece and it's about 18 years old. It's been circulating from what I hear over the years. It's kind of come up and come down. Frank Magazine had it earlier this year. But it was it, it's sort of more prominent than ever. I hadn't heard of it before, but then Breibart reported on it, and so then it hit Twitter, uh, and that's more when I became aware of it. Warren Kinsella tweeted it as well. So the the piece is pretty short, and I'm not it's not clear who it's written by, but it does talk about a quote from Trudeau saying, "If I'd known that you were reporting for a national newspaper." then he wouldn't have been so forward. It uses some language like inappropriate handling, and then towards the end, it actually uses groping. So when I first skimmed it, I thought, "Mm, I'm not really sure what's going on there. And then I sort of moved on. Yeah, it's incredibly thin. The piece itself, which appeared, it seems to be that it's not like, you know, doctored or or manufactured. It appears to be an actual column. Like it's kind of this weird unbylined sidebar in a newspaper called the Creston Valley Advance. And as you say, from the year 2000, And that's the quote that is attributed to Justin Trudeau. If I'd known you were reporting for a national newspaper, I would never have been so forward. What he was so forward to do, it's described in the piece as manhandling and groping or whatever. We don't know, was that, what was that? Was that a non-consensual, you know, it's implied that it's non-consensual. We don't know any of the details about it. And I think there's been a big concerted effort to find this woman. And I think a lot of people suspect they know who that is, but the person they think it is doesn't want to talk. You talked a little bit about like kind of how this bubbled up. I'm sure it's true that it's been bouncing around for a while. This particular go around, I think we've traced this correctly. Warren Kinsella says he got it from an active member of parliament, uh, who some people are saying is a liberal member of parliament. I have no idea. Kinsella says he got it from an MP. And and tweeted it out. Sean Craig, former Candleland reporter, currently with The Logic, he picked up the tweet. From there, I believe it went to BuzzFeed. Ishmael Darrow did a story on it. And then Breitbart was the first American. I guess BuzzFeed's American, even though Ishmael is here in Toronto. Breitbart picked it up. Mm-hmm. And then the New York Times alluded to it. And that's how it got kind of matched into this G7 narrative. And if you can believe it, I think the New York Times coverage of this was less responsible than the Breitbart coverage. I'm going to read to you the lead from Catherine Porter's piece in the New York Times. Hours before President Trump landed in Canada on Friday, 18-year-old allegations that Justin Trudeau once groped a reporter resurfaced on a website sympathetic to the president. Coincidence? Maybe. Maybe not. It was certainly a sensational lead. My eyebrows raised a little bit when I was reading that. Uh, And I hadn't actually made the connection, although I don't know if the connection is completely unfair. Um, It might be a coincidence that the MP passed it off to Warren Kinsella. But the timing when Justin was about to be on the global, sorry, when the prime minister was about to be on the global stage certainly uh, wasn't coincidental. 
I suppose, I mean, Justin Trudeau is always on the global stage and it's entirely possible there were political motivations in releasing this when it was released that have to do with the G7, but that lead from Catherine Porter suggests that she knows that it was and that what's going to follow is, if not a conclusive account of how this conspiracy, you know, worked, at least some information. And she's got nothing. Or if she has anything, she doesn't write about it. There is nothing in this piece. Yeah, after that, it just goes right into G7 Summit. And so it's it's disappointing, I guess, if you're looking for the uh, sensational story of Justin Trudeau, the groper. Yeah. And Kinsella, you know, maybe he doesn't know why the MP gave it to him. But, you know, he wrote back to The New York Times uh, saying, my only reason in going public with this was because I care about the Me Too movement. And <laughs> Maybe that's true, or maybe um, the only kind of conspiracy that I'm aware of Warren Kinsella being a, a part of is a conspiracy to get people to say Warren Kinsella as many times as possible. So, I, you know, I raise an eyebrow at the idea that this was all some, I mean, somebody wanted this. There's a lot of people who would want this to surface. I don't know. The connection to the G7 seems incredibly tenuous to me. I think it's just a question of this is the most interesting bunch of stuff that I have to tell the New York Times readership about Justin Trudeau at this particular moment in time. Well, the fact that it has been circulating for years, I mean, it wasn't unknown to people and, and that Frank Magazine had covered earlier in the year, but it hadn't really got traction until the G7 is kind of a connection to me, whether or not that was intentional or coincidental. I, I can't say. Yeah, I think that that's a good starting point for journalistic inquiry. Warren Kinsella has definitely been a proponent in the Me Too movement. He's spoken, he definitely amplified the voice of Kristen Raworth when she was sharing her story of being sexually harassed by uh, MP Kent Hare. But at the same time, he doesn't like Trudeau and his dislike is well known. So it, it is a little suspicious that he's pushing this story. And I don't think that it's just altruistic motives. Yeah, I think that that's fair to, to question Kinsella's motives. You know what really I found notable about this whole thing is that this was a case where you never know when these things start bubbling up if it's going to be a, you know, a nothing, a big scandal, or if it's going to lead to a series of allegations. And there was, I think, I mean, you know, knowing that this was in Frank months ago, a consensus amongst the Canadian media that this fell below the standard of reportability. And in fact, you know, we had somebody booked early on to talk with me in general about G7 stuff who said, if you're going to talk about this um, Justin Trudeau groping thing, I'm not even going to be on, you know, that's so thin. It's so unsubstantiated. I'm not even going to be on a show that talks about that. That's a fine and principled position for Canadian media to have. But when the New York Times is mentioning it, when it's in media all around the world, and the only place that is not discussing it, with the exception of Toronto Sun, which of course picked it up, the only place where it's not being covered and discussed and hashed over is in the Canadian media, and it's about the Canadian Prime Minister? I mean, this is this kind of growing trend of globalization of Canadian news information. The areas where our standards or our culture is incompatible with journalism elsewhere, we're just going to get bulldozed. I'm not sure that we were always so principled, though. I mean, I do have a hard time believing that if this was a conservative politician. I think about the allegations against Patrick Brown, which were a little more substantial than this. I think it would at least be mentioned. Um, I know that the woman who was in the article hasn't come forward, doesn't want to speak. So it is difficult to write a story about it. But to just like the radio silence on it is, is a little telling. I think so. I think it's a hangover of, you know, we can call it high standards or, you know, Canadian propriety and that we haven't fallen to the gutter yet. But I wonder if there are double standards at work and I wonder if we don't congratulate ourselves a bit too much about these things that actually have to do with protecting Trudeau, protecting people at the top. You know, it's interesting. Trudeau, of course, was approached by BuzzFeed, probably by others for comment on this. And his press secretary did not deny it outright. The wording in a denial is very carefully considered. And here's the wording of this denial from Trudeau's press secretary. 
Justin Trudeau, quote, doesn't think he had any negative interactions. That's really interesting. I mean, first of all, there's like some, you know, he doesn't think he had. So if it comes up later that this happened, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, he wasn't lying. And then something may have happened, but it wasn't a negative interaction. So, uh, you know, you can only speculate that uh, they're covering for what actually did happen. Maybe it was a positive interaction, thinks Justin. And, you know, who knows? Yeah, well, he was 28 years old and at a music festival, so I'm sure something happened. Yeah, it's suggestive that something happened. At the same time, I think, uh, especially the prime minister, he has to be very cautious in his wording. He couldn't do an outright denial because he has talked about needing to believe women who come forward about sexual assault. So how do you do that and then blatantly deny that anything could have happened without kind of treading into uh, thin ice? Robin Doolittle, Globe Mail investigative reporter, she just won the Missioner, which I believe is the highest journalistic prize in Canada, for her unfounded investigation, which is an excellent piece of deep dive, long-term reporting that revealed that a huge percentage of sexual assaults that are reported to police are immediately dismissed as unfounded without much investigation. So congratulations to Robin Doolittle and to the Globe and Mail for facilitating that piece of enterprise journalism. But we are in, we're far enough along in in the media taking sexual assault seriously that you'd think that we would sort of have some sort of standards and practices around this stuff. And other stuff that has appeared recently in the Globe and Mail, I believe has fallen incredibly short of that. Have you read this exclusive interview that the Globe's Gary Mason had with Stephen Galloway, the former English professor at UBC? Yes, I have. And it really was biased. I mean, there was it's an incredibly sympathetic piece to a person who has been accused of both sexual violence and sexual harassment to have a piece that doesn't interview the main complainant at all uh, was just really striking to me. And and I don't think that we see pieces that are this sympathetic to actual victims of sexual violence. Instead, Stephen Galloway, who has been well defended in the media, he's been defended by Margaret Atwood, of course, and Gary Mason has been carrying water for him. And um, I'm surprised to see this, but at the same time, this is kind of old guard media. It is. And, you know, trying to parse where an author's sympathies lie when they're doing an interview. There's a lot of room for deniability there. And this case is such a messy case, and there's so much that's not known to the public. It's very hard to arrive at conclusions. I want to look at this reporting, this interview, this piece, whatever you want to call it, by Gary Mason, really specifically. Like, if we limit ourselves to just, like, what's in the article to begin with, and you point out, I think, the the central fatal flaw of this piece, to interview someone alleged of sexual assault, alleged of rape, and not speak to his accuser. Right there, I mean, forget about Me Too standards of reporting or specific standards that are specific to, like any type of allegation. If I'm doing an interview on this show and I'm not even like reporting a story, I'm just speaking to somebody, but they start talking about serious allegations against them, I have a responsibility to seek comment from the other side. And the main complainant is willing to talk through her lawyer. She, uh, I understand, is kind of beside herself that the media is tripping over themselves to speak to Galloway now that he's finally talking and didn't even bother to ask her in this case. I couldn't quite wrap my head around this. It, it is an interview. It is a piece of journalism that is not an opinion column, although he regularly does opinion columns. And so I don't know how, I don't think a younger and less experienced journalist would be able to get this by an editor without them insisting that you have to speak to the other side of the story. 
Yeah, that's an excellent point. I think that that is sort of an enduring part of Globe and Mail culture where there's different standards for different writers there. And, you know, this is not just sort of like a technical point I'm making. I mean, if we actually look at the piece itself, first of all, the occasion that Galloway is taking to finally break his silence and give this exclusive interview to a very sympathetic interviewer is that an arbitration process at UBC has resulted in them paying him a sum of money. He has declared in the interview that he's won a moral victory. And I think that to the casual reader, this is some sort of vindication. If you read it more closely, there is a specific reason why the arbitrator found that UBC owes him money, and that is that they bungled the communication around his firing. UBC, they issued a memo, and they gave interviews, and they said things that cast a lot of suspicion on Galloway before they had done a full investigation. That was one area of complaint in which he was found to have been wronged. I think it's worth pointing out that the complainants also feel that they were wronged by that, uh, and they didn't get a payout at all, and didn't have a faculty association to vouch for them. Perhaps the more relevant complaint that he was unfairly fired, we find out through another Globe piece by Marsha Lederman, who's actually reporting this story, that he withdrew that complaint. That Galloway could have had the arbitrator look at, were you fairly fired or unfairly fired? But A, they might have found that he was fairly fired. And B, it would have been public. All of the information that led to that would have been public. And he said, no, that's okay. I withdraw my complaint about that. None of that would you know from Gary Mason's piece. That's right. And that is something worth mentioning that he chose to go uh, one way and he, he very clearly does not want some information public. We don't know what that means exactly. Perhaps that's difficult for his wife to have to go through this affair again after it's been in the media and her husband has lost his job. But when there's allegations of sexual harassment and assault, I think we have to do a better job as media in reporting that. And I think we, we can't just push that aside because it's somebody who, well, this might not be fair, but somebody who is a person that the author of the piece can see themselves in. You know, a lot of times when I see men defending sexual, people who are accused of sexual assault, it's more about being afraid of that accusation and the fear that anybody could be labeled with that. And in, in the Me Too era, that's actually risen more. So I can't help but wonder about the intentions of the piece, although that's pure speculation. Well, the piece is, if you read it casually, it's a real tearjerker. I mean, Galloway's life is ruined. He's on the verge of suicide. He's very upfront about these things. And this is, you know, an area of interest for Gary Mason. He, of course, was not only a reporter who covered the John Furlong story and how John Furlong, in Gary Mason's view, was unfairly maligned by the many, many indigenous people who claimed that John Furlong abused them as children. Mm -hmm. Gary Mason reported on that and interviewed John Furlong about that. But, of course, Gary Mason also is the co-author of John Furlong's memoir in which he lied about misrepresented when he first came to Canada covering up the period of time when he was running a program in a uh, quasi-residential school. So this is something that Gary Mason has been associated with for some time. The more you read this piece on Galloway, really the angrier I got. The main complainant against Galloway never went public with details about her sexual assault allegations. Her choice was to be private about the like very graphic details of, of how she alleges she was assaulted. Gary Mason gave Stephen Galloway in this piece space to detail, in his view, 
what her allegations against him were. Mm -hmm. Quote, for the first time, Mr. Galloway detailed three separate incidents of sexual assault that MC main complainant leveled against him. He said she accused him, and then it goes on to provide fairly graphic detail, all through Galloway's editing and presentation of how he wishes to present her accusations. So this is not a he said, she said story. It's a he says that she said story. You know, he is given absolute control over the narrative here, as he has from the start. It's frequently quoted in the media that this um, this judge who was hired to do an independent investigation of the charges found that on a balance of probabilities, he didn't do it. Now, that may well be true that that is in the report, but the source of that report, as far as I can tell in these media accounts, is Galloway himself, that he selectively released parts of her report. So they're taking it from him, what's in the report, and the main complainant says she still hasn't seen a full version of this report. So he's feeding bits of it out to the media that obviously serve him. She can't even get her hands on it. He's blocked her freedom of information requests. The main complainant can't even get her hands on the full report. Yeah, there's a lot wrong with this story. I mean, my heart goes out to the main complainant and the issues that she's going through and Galloway's wife as well. I'm less sympathetic to Galloway. I just, I think there's an issue when a university is the organization litigating the crime. And that's partly why we see this being such a mess, it's not fair and open and transparent. And so Stephen Galloway seems to have a certain power in how he presents his information to the media that the complainant doesn't have. But at the same time, it's it's completely outside of the legal process. So covering that as a journalist is odd. You're kind of dependent upon what information Galloway is willing to release. Yeah, I share your uh, lack of sympathy, I, you know, for Galloway in, in certain aspects of this. I mean, though he's uh, very open with comment to Gary Mason, when Marsha Lederman goes to him for comment, saying, what do you have to say about what the main complainant is saying here, that you didn't even want to complain about your termination, he declines comment. So through his lawyer, he's been shutting down a lot of criticism since the scandal broke out. This is a very carefully managed damage control project. And I just think that, you know, the Globe and Mail can't have it both ways. They can't be the champion of victims with Unfounded and publish this stuff. Like, what are their standards? I mean, to allow a person accused of rape, sexual assault, to write the narrative from start to finish in that piece, it falls short of just basic. I mean, Jan Wong tweeted about this, like, this is why you don't have a single source story. If Gary Mason has more sources than Stephen Galloway for this story, he doesn't name them. You know, as far as you can tell, all of this information in the piece comes directly from Stephen Galloway. Yeah, it's a very one-sided piece, and I think that's where they aired. Not that people shouldn't have any sympathy for Stephen Galloway. I mean, obviously, it's tragic. His career is in ruins. He may not be in ruins forever. There's possibility of redemption. But... You're right. It is striking the difference between Robin Doolittle's reporting and Stephen Galloway's single source smear piece against the uh, main complainant. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does 
BetterHelp. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Danielle, I want to take a moment to thank our second sponsor, Squarespace. A dream is just a great idea that does not have a website yet. You can make it a reality by using Squarespace. It makes it easy to turn your idea into a unique website. You can showcase your work, your blog. You can publish content, sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. With 24-7 award-winning customer support, you can customize everything from the look and feel to settings and products. You can use beautiful templates created by world-class designers. And there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. We recently used Squarespace to set up a project, to set up a website, and it is as advertised. It's super simple and works. It just works. And it's compatible with anything you might want to do when you're running a website. So head to squarespace.com slash CanadaLand for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code CanadaLand. You'll save 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain. Danielle, we have a feature every episode of the show called Duly Noted. You might be aware of this. You might have something to note duly. I do. I would like to duly note a story that is not really making news, and I think it should, and it's on um, the shooting of Josephine Peltier. She is a Cree woman who was shot by the Calgary police in front of her young son. She ended up dying of those injuries. There's a short piece in, I believe, a Calgary newspaper just mentioning that a woman was shot by police. That was um, from the press release that Alberta sends whenever there's been a police officer shooting. But it doesn't name the the individual. So Desmond Cole, on his show, um, News Talk 1010, did cover the story and he ended up naming Josephine Peltier and actually interviewing her family. And it just seems to me like a, a typical way that we ignore issues that happen in the Indigenous community, especially when it's Indigenous women. So the story itself is still being investigated. We don't know all of the details, but it's a police shooting and it's a police shooting of a woman and it's in front of her child. And it just seems like it's noteworthy. Is Desmond's interview online? It is. He has um, on his iHeartRadio.ca. We will uh, throw up a link in our show notes. So uh, thank you for that. Duly noted. I want to alert everyone's attention to a new business website that uh, David Scott, David Scott's a Canadian guy who ran digital stuff at the Boston Globe and then the Toronto Star brought him on and that didn't work out. Anyhow, he's launched this site with, I mentioned earlier that Sean Craig is one of his reporters and Zane Schwartz got a, a strong team, small but strong team. And they're trying to fix something that I think is pretty broken, which is business reporting in Canada. I mean, I'm not a part of that community, but I've often felt that like, you know, your ROB coverage, 
Bridge, Financial Post, a lot of good journalism in there, but it seems like it is very squarely aimed at like a 50 plus Bay Street kind of crowd. And anytime they touch tech and that whole side of, of industry, it's just sort of like, gee whiz, here's a young wonderkind. And, you know, to actually know where money is moving and what's going on and what's happening with innovative companies in Canada, I feel like there's been a hole in the market. And uh, that is what David Scott is trying to fill with this website, The Logic. And it is, it's a pretty pricey subscription. It's like 300 bucks a year. And, you know, he and I chatted about it months ago. And I said, you know what, if you can convince people that this isn't just like fun to read or interesting, but like it's going to help them in their careers. Like it's, it, this is business information for people who are professionals. I think people will pay for it. I think Canadians do pay for news and they'll pay for this. So it's nice to see new stuff happening. And I did note, you know, it wouldn't be on this show, if there wasn't a little bit of tension or conflict in this, there was a tweet from one Moira Weigel who said, so I co-founded and co-run a magazine about technology called Logic. Anyone know what I'm supposed to do when other apparently better funded people roll up two years later and start a magazine about technology called The Logic? So that had me scratching my head. What do you think? Is it fair game to launch a website called The Logic to cover business with a technological slant when there already exists a magazine about technology called Logic? What do you think? Yeah, I do think it's fair. I mean, it's marketing. It's a catchy name. Um, I don't know if you're just because you're you have a similar sounding media source that exists that you should totally avoid the name. So that's not a huge controversy for me. I, I went and looked at the website of Logic, not even wondering if this was like unfair for David to take this name, but like, is that a good idea from a business point of view? Like if somebody's already got that name, is it like, what, what are search results? Mm -hmm. You know, it seems like there's a lot of room for confusion. I didn't know about this pre-existing Logic magazine. So what I found was a very simple website that says, we are a print magazine about technology that publishes three times per year with a small digital footprint. So first of all, a, a print magazine about technology in 2018. Yeah, with a small digital footprint. <laughs> with a small digital footprint. That's not laughter of mockery. Maybe that's, I, I haven't seen this print magazine. Maybe that's an amazing, you know, reversal of people's, like, maybe it's fantastic. I don't know. But I kind of think that if that's the decision you make, you can't complain too loudly if it's, you know, that's a word in the English language logic, you know, I, I don't know that you can necessarily cry foul. <laughs> I'm not sure that the, um, given the small digital footprint, that the creators of The Logic would actually have been aware of it either. I don't know. Duly noted. Danny, finally today, I want to talk with you about this big New York Magazine long read about Vice Magazine. It's called A Company Built on a Bluff by Reeves Weideman. I am a person who enjoys being right, and listeners of the show will remember, I am sure, that I, I've described Vice frequently as a hipster Ponzi scheme. My, you know, I think informed take on Vice, having watched them keenly through the years from when they were operating out of a loft apartment around the corner from mine in, in downtown Montreal to this multi-billion dollar global conglomerate has been that it's a pyramid scheme. It's kind of a scam that Shane essentially is just sort of like filling this hot air balloon with hot air. And it's just getting bigger and bigger from a little kid's party balloon to this massive, much larger balloon. And, you know, which is not to say that the whole thing is bullshit because sometimes, you know, a big hot air balloon takes off. Like you fake it till you make it. And they have made things that are worthy. And, and maybe the company itself would ultimately sell for billions, as Shane Smith has been predicting for years, or maybe the whole thing would just pop. And so 
as a person who enjoys being right and feeling right, it was really, really interesting to read this piece by Reeves Weidemann that sort of substantiates that idea of ice in a more detailed way than I've seen reported before. And my full disclosure is that uh, Reeves did get in touch with me and I, I uh, shared some thoughts with him and some some contacts about Vice while he was reporting it. Have you read the piece? Yeah. I mean, the ability of Smith to raise money was just amazing to me. And uh, it is a great read. I definitely recommend looking through it. It's so detailed. It talks about um, the rise of Viceland from this sort of scrappy upstart where they're doing cocaine off of models and sending journalists into dangerous areas to do documentaries to it sort of struggles growing up when it's in its adolescent phase and there's still this kind of bro culture and female journalists who didn't like the environment and that was covered in other stories of course too was the um sort of sexual culture of vice and uh, the way that there's all these inter-office relationships and definitely blurring some boundaries at some point. Uh, that was all a really compelling combination of things. Um, also talking about the non-traditional workplace agreement, that was really interesting. It read, although it's possible that some of the text messages and information I will be exposed to in the course of my employment with Vice may be considered by some to be offensive, indecent, violent, or disturbing, I do not find such text images or information or the workplace environment advice to be offensive, indecent, violent, or disturbing. That just really struck me as a very interesting workplace agreement. Well, it's a carte blanche, isn't it? It's saying at the outset that I don't know what I'm going to see here, but whatever I see, I'm telling you, you know, table stakes before I even, you know, take a job here that I have no problem with anything that happens to me in here. Reading this was fascinating just to see how the values that were there from the beginning when there was just like a handful of these people festered and grew to like, if you work for Vice, a company where, you know, Shane Smith has called it a, a sweatshop for Trustafarians, they're open <laughs> about exploiting their own people, they're open about, they've bragged about exploiting their advertisers, they've bragged about, you know, duplicitous business practices. Sarush is quoted in the piece saying, the reason those lies were so successful was because even we believe them after a while. So, you know, all of the reporting that's happened throughout the years and into this piece really shows how when you work for a company with those values, how those dynamics get played out with everybody there. And, you know, Shane's, Shane's methodology of like, you get a big chunk of money and instead of using it to build your company to return profits to your investor, use that money to just expand as big as you can and put up the biggest kind of peacock, whether or not these things are profitable or not, you make it look as big and international and slick as possible, not to satisfy that investor. You've already got their money, but to woo the next investor in. And there are these incredible anecdotes in the piece about him, you know, renting additional office space to pretend that that's part of their operation in advance of a big meeting with Intel and, and mm -hmm. them kind of like putting on this big show and then using that to get another $250 million and, and on and on it goes. Why I want to talk about it in a Canadian context on this show is that there are allusions to events here that are being buzzed about. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to specifically read a passage here that a lot of people at Vice Canada and the media here would like further information about. And you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add a trigger warning here before I read this passage. It uh, details sexual violence. In recent months, Vice has also quietly let go of multiple longtime male employees against whom women have made allegations of harassment and assault. The company's human resources department had begun reinvestigating various claims, including one that a female employee had first brought to HR in 2015 when she said that she was punched in the face during a sexual encounter with a senior manager from another Vice office. 
Nothing was done at the time, but after she spoke to a third-party investigator hired by Vice earlier this year, the man was fired. When she checked his Twitter feed, he described his departure as stemming from a desire to pursue other projects. So this is not reported as something that Reeves, you know, heard. This is reported as fact by Reeves. And I don't know, you know, New York Magazine, I have to imagine, has some standard of fact-checking and uh, authentication for the stuff that they print. And I'm trying to get some clarification from him. But, you know, people are wondering, what is this other vice office? Who are these senior managers who are fired due to harassment or assault complaints? Mm -hmm. And this tidbit about the Twitter stream where this person said they were uh, they had a desire to pursue other projects, and that's why they were leaving. Of course, that's what a lot of people say when they're fired for any number of reasons. But, you know, it is this slow process where people are starting to speak up. And Carly Lewis, who used to work with Vice, uh, she tweeted, uh, have said this many times over the years, my employers advice Canada laughed at me when I asked that we not rehire a known alleged serial rapist for a video contract. They made me feel prudish and embarrassed and like I was outside the realm of my jurisdiction for even mentioning it. So I think that people who work there want to know if one of the protected employees was somebody who worked with them or even was a manager. And one wonders, you know, when the New York Times had a big piece about harassment complaints advice, a lot of people felt like not everything that the New York Times knew was included in that piece. Mm -hmm. So there, there are some outstanding questions that are buzzing around as this piece reverberates in the offices of Vice Canada and outside. And a lot of people, you know, it's just so hard to know because Vice did lay off a whole bunch of people here in Canada, but they also are having serious business problems. So you want to be very careful before drawing any conclusions about this. But at the same time, these are the moments when people feel emboldened to step forward if there's stuff that needs to be known. Yeah, I think this is the time that we'll see more stories coming from um, Vice headquarters, probably more than we've seen in the Times story. It's too early to tell right now. But I, I think what struck me was that that was kind of buried in the piece. It's talking about the ability to raise money. Um, the culture is definitely a fair comment. But then when it gets into an encounter where a female employee was punched in the face during a sexual encounter, you know, I, I want to know more about that. I want to hear uh, that person's name if this is, you know, an actual crime. I don't want to see violent men just sort of getting off um, on these kinds of allegations. I mean, it was sort of like John Gomeshi-esque. Yeah, it certainly brings that to mind. I mean, if the complaint was serious enough to fire this person, you think there'd be some level of public accountability about it? Yeah, I mean, you've never really seen that with Vice, though, and that's, I guess, because they're still growing. They grew so quickly from this small magazine to a, a large, multi-billion-dollar organization uh, without really knowing what to do. I mean, the piece talks about the human resource uh, just kind of being plunked into an office where there was a human resources department. And um, God bless those people, because that can't be an easy job. Was it Vice's human resources department that somebody had previously worked for Weinstein? Yes. Danielle, I think that this is the kind of stuff that we may finally learn. I mean, you know, there was a very cultish, pack-like mentality amongst Vice employees. They knew that everybody wanted to know about what was happening inside, and, and they were very, very protective of that information. What's happening now, as I understand it, what's detailed in this New York Magazine piece, is that Me Too slowed Shane's role. They fucked up Shane's plan. They were on the verge of unloading this thing when Me Too broke, and then the New York Times is investigating. And, you know, that's one narrative is, is that as soon as it became widely known that if you buy Vice, you're buying a whole bunch of 
problems of protected senior managers and executives, of insurance policies that have to do with this, all kinds of liability that comes with Vice. And, you know, a company like Disney would back away very quickly from a deal like that. There's another narrative, and these are not mutually exclusive narratives, that anybody who actually looked under the hood, and to mix metaphors and look through the books of Vice, would just see that this is just hype, that they're just not making the money that they say they're making, and the money they are making has a lot to do with, uh, you know, questionable clicks coming from Vice affiliate sites and things like that. So now they're in this retrench mode where they have a new CEO, Gloria Steinem is in-house, they got to change their image. <laughs> Meanwhile, they've they've just expanded and expanded and expanded and into things like cable television for some god, you know, I guess the reason is that people are willing to pay for it. And now they're going to have to find a solvent, profitable business somewhere within this gargantuan thing that was built mm-hmm. if they can withstand everything that gets exposed during this tumultuous period. Yeah, their expansion beyond online media to cable and launching their channel, all of that was just, it was really amazing to me to see um, a media company grow in this way. And it was also interesting, you know, you mentioned Gloria Steinem having um, this evolution. Uh, Like there are some really good journalists at Vice and I wouldn't want to um, lump them into, you know, this kind of bro management culture. So I think we do need to differentiate between those as well. Uh, Management operating this way doesn't mean that the staff is, you know, tacitly endorsing it. It's difficult in journalism and they hire young people and, and underpay them. So Uh, In addition to cleaning up their workplace and hopefully, you know, being realistic about their books, I think they probably need to pay their journalists more. Danny, thank you. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. Thank you. Everybody, you can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read what you send me. And we are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Danielle, where can people find you? Twitter at Danny Parody. We have a website. It is called canadalandshow.com. We put stories on it. We also have hundreds of free podcasts you can check out there. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This episode was produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. And if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.